Good morning, brothers. Now, with these hymns I choose, see, I'm trying to read my audience. So I knew we had a lot of Baptists because I heard that when he plunged me to victory. You love that. I was a Baptist once. And, um, and uh, then I was a Methodist. So we've had a Wesley hymn. And uh, we have... Uh, we have had, we'll have, a, we, we I choose these hymns uh, in all seriousness, not just to match the theme, but I hope to uh, reflect some of your traditions. Uh, so we have Gregory and Nazianzus, that's a good Catholic uh, forefather. We have a hymn, two of his in our hymnal. And of course, the Wesleys and Whitfields, they were Episcopalians at one point. Now, uh, my good Episcopal friends have tried over the years to teach me uh, one of their hymns, uh, something like Winnie, Winnie, Hoochamaduchie. I don't know how it goes exactly, but if you wanna, want us to sing one of your hymns that we haven't sung yet, bring them all forward. We'll try to do it because, uh, making a serious note, the, the church really does meet in the hymnal. We may meet in different locations, and sometimes we let denominations make too much of a difference between us, but in our hymnal, uh, we sing each other's hymns, and uh, uh, it's going to be helpful in heaven because we'll know each other's songs ahead of time. So that is a great hymn, not only because it reflects uh, happy times for many of us, but it also reminds us of, of our dear brother and father, Billy Graham, doesn't it? We've already sung Just As I Am just a few weeks ago. And uh, Victory in Jesus was another favorite. He's a great hero of the faith to all of us, a, a great hero to me personally. I wrote something about it on our website yesterday. That was, uh, it's, uh, we all grieve that we have, we have lost a, um, a hero here, a warrior here, but heaven has gained a prince. And we are, we are very grateful for a man who loved Jesus to the very end in whose life there was no compromise, uh, whose life God's faithfulness was manifest and gave a good name to the church of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9 and uh, verse 23. I'm battling a little bit with my voice this morning, so forgive me, I've got my hot tea here if we have to have a a pause. Hebrews chapter, <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 9, verse 23. Let me remind you um, where we've come from. We've been studying over the last several chapters these Old Testament sacrifices and practices and, and personalities like Melchizedek, whom we have learned, especially in the book of Hebrews, God specifically designed in their time and era to be foreshadows of Christ. It's not like they, they came along and they, they tried to do their work and they tried the sacrifices and Melchizedek tried his best to be a priest and it just didn't work and so God had to scrap that plan. He comes into the New Testament and he goes back and uses them as, as an illustration. That's not, it as, as, that's not it at all. God is not only writing the Bible, he's writing history and he's writing people and practices into history and all for the single purpose of revealing 
that we are going to be saved alone through Christ for the praise of His glorious grace into all of eternity. So we've come from Melchizedek into the temple, the tabernacle. We've looked at the furniture in the tabernacle. We've seen that its architecture and its arrangement uh, says everything about how impossible it is to get to God on your, in your own good works. You, you can't run straight to the Holy of Holies. You trip over the brazen altar and then you trip over the, 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 the um, altar of incense and the, and the showbread and the, and the, and the candelabra. Uh, and, and then you hit a curtain and you can't get through that. God is saying in all of those, those, that architecture, you can only come through the blood of the lamb, the lamb, the last lamb, not these. You're sacrificing hundreds of them every month. It's going to be the last lamb, the lamb that I provide. Now, we come to this very important word at the beginning of verse 23. You see it? Somebody yell it out to me. Thus, thus it was necessary. Now, thus tells you, look back at what was before. I've just told you everything is before. Thus, all of that stuff was necessary. Now, necessary is a strong word when God writes it because it is divinely necessary. There's a little word, different word, in the, in the, in the Gospels, um, a three-letter word in Greek, and uh, you, can, you, you hear it sometimes, it was necessary that he move on to the next, we call it the particle of divine necessity. Whenever that word used, whenever this word is used, this word is uh, anak, but whenever this word is used, it means it's not just... It's not just important, it's of divine necessity. Thus it was of divine necessity that all of these things occur, all of these foreshadowings occur to to show you the only way of salvation and thus it is necessary for you to come to Christ to be saved. Right, with that in mind... Let's look very humbly at verses 23 to 28. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but in the heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. <clears throat> Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Let's pray together.
Lord Jesus, would you dispatch your Holy Spirit to us this morning? Fall upon these pages of Scripture and allow us to not only to understand what is written here, because these things in this book are hard to understand, Lord Jesus, but help us not just to understand them intellectually. We beg that you would open our hearts to receive them and to practice them. And then we pray that you would open our mouths to tell others today the good news we have discovered and not just invite them, but compel them to come in, to come into this place of intimate, totally reconciled relationship with God the Father through Christ, in whose name we pray it. God's people said, Amen. <clears throat> uh, Harry Ironside was fond of a story about a man, a British man named Jock. He worked in an accounting house, an accounting firm, and he, um, he was living pretty much hand-to-mouth. He had uh, he would make his paycheck, and it would just barely cover his expenses. But one day, uh, one of his buddies, uh, one of his colleagues, came in and said, uh, "You know, Jacques, I'm having trouble making ends meet. I wish you would loan me some money." And Jacques said, uh, "I I don't have enough. I have barely have enough to live on myself. I can't I can't give any to you." And this man. Uh, leaned over and whispered into his ear something. And after he said that something to Jacques, Jacques emptied his pockets and gave him the money. Uh, the man said to himself, I've discovered a silver mine because I have the secret about his life and by it, by the threat of revealing it, I can, I got a gravy train. I can get as much money as I want from him. Week after week, he'd do the same thing. I need some money. I don't have it. You don't want me to tell everybody else, do you? He would hand it over. Jock was a nervous guy. He was afraid somebody would get this, get this secret, not only from this man, but it was observed in his behavior. He was constantly looking up every time the door opened, looking up to see who was coming in. They said he would look down the alleyways before he would exit from work. Jacques needed something. He needed something in his past to be put away. Put it away. He couldn't put it away by whatever. I'm sure he'd tried everything he could thus far. He, he tried to avoid those who could reveal his secret, and now somehow this one man had tapped into it, and he held power over him. He needed someone to put that thing away. Now, you see the language that's used in this, in this passage, that uh, he, having been offered for sins, uh, giving the proper sacrifice in verse 26 at the end of the ages, put away sin, put it away. That's what we need. We need that putting 
away. In the Greek, it's annulled, canceled, thought of as non-existent. We need it put away. And that's what Jesus came to offer. That is what we remember we, we talked about, that prehistorical covenant among the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the decision to save a people for himself. And we're going to do it this way. A perfect man, perfect, perfectly divine, perfectly human person is going to come, live, die, and rise in their place. And only by that will their sin be put away. And they made that decision in that covenant, in making that covenant in heaven, in a place that is copied on earth, and they've decided to put it away. Well, let's look at how, how it comes across, how he makes the point in this passage of the, the sacrifice, the only kind of sacrifice, the only kind of Savior who can put away sin like that. It has to be final, you see, in verse 23. Look at it again. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified by these rites. Now, it's an interesting, it's interesting terminology, isn't it? Uh, that the, the tabernacle that was built in the wilderness, the furniture, the arrangement, was not something that, that Moses said, you know, I need, to, I need to think of something physical to illustrate something spiritual. It is rather that God said, here is what is in heaven. I want you to copy it on earth. There is an altar. There is light. Uh, there is a throne room. There is blood. There is a lamb. I want you to copy it. Very carefully gave these very distinct instructions, copy this down there because this is where I'm doing the work up here. And I want it, I just want to comfort them down there. I want to, I want to drive them to it. And then once I've driven them to it, I want them to be encouraged by it. There is a, there is a physicality to heaven that, that, uh, that, that we don't, we, we find difficult in our era to appreciate, I say our era because we are heirs of Greek philosophy, particularly Platonism, that drove a sharp wedge between spiritual and physical. And we are heirs of those who said everything that is spiritual is good. What you can't see, if you can't see it, if you can't imagine it, if it's nebulous, if it's, that's good. If you can feel it, touch it, see it, that's bad. And, and the body, the body is a prison house of the soul. If we can just get rid of the body and get the soul freed, the soul that you can't see, that moves around in spaces and, and floats around and, it's, and it's, it's unobjectifiable, that's good. And we've sort of inherited that, haven't we? Even though we don't live that way, we live as if our bodies are important because we, we, try, we take care of them. Uh, 
even though we might say that, you know, places on earth really don't mean anything, that, that play, you know, build buildings and, and church buildings in my house, and so that doesn't mean anything. Well, that's not the way you live. When you, when you move out of a house where you've raised your children, you shed a tear, don't you? Because you have memories associated with a place. We are place, placed people. There are real spiritual, spiritually, emotionally meaningful things that happen to us in this place. Some of you were baptized in this church or you grew up in your church or you came to faith in your church. That place is important to you. And why are places important to you? Because God, God dignifies places and God made a covenant in a place to save you. And Jesus because he's still in a human body, is in a place interceding for you and for me. We, we tend to think that heaven is way, 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 way far away. It might be. But there's nothing scriptural that says it has to be. Jesus just went out of their sight above the clouds. That wouldn't have been hard. He didn't have to get very high today to get above the clouds. What if heaven... If heaven is a real place where Jesus really is, and there is a place that is copied on earth where God has accomplished our redemption, what if it's just right there? And Jesus, who, had, who demonstrated in his physical body that it had different capabilities than ours do, he can move through walls and so forth, so he could, he could change up his, the arrangement of his physical body. What if it's just there. It, the Bible seems to indicate it is. It reminds us that when we worship, we're in the presence of angels. And remember, there's a great cloud of witnesses. We're surrounded by cosmic disturbance or clash between God's angels and, and uh, demons. Uh, it's, it's, it's rather moving, isn't it? to think that God is really near and that He is doing something in a place to accomplish your redemption in this place that you can feel and touch and see. And when we die, we're given a new set of eyes to see things as they really, really are. So these are copies. The heavenly things, the real thing, not, not, the, not the unseen things, but the real things. These things, the heavenly things, are purified with better sacrifices. So you had these copies on earth, this, this uh, sacrificial system that's a, that's a teaching tool, a flannel graph. <clears throat> but all of it is reflecting what is truly happening in heaven. And he said there, a sacrifice was made that is a permanent and better sacrifice than was ever made on the flannel graph down here. That is, Jesus returned to that place where He made the covenant with the Father and the Son to save. He, he, he made, he, 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 he substituted Himself for our sins. God, through the wrath, uh, His wrath stored up against sin, He threw it all at His Son His son caught it 
in his uh, uh, legally and spiritually. We say he descended into hell. That is, he uh, died and he, he faced the, the devil and his minions. And uh, he died because he became a sinner. It became sin for us. He was released from that because his perfect life justified, canceled out our sins that had been put on him, and he sprang back to life, made some appearances here, and then went to heaven. He went back to the throne room, went back to the altar, and he stood at the altar, and he said, it is, he repeated what he repeated on earth, it's finished. The blood necessary to cancel their sins once for all, it has been satisfied. It has been paid. And that's where he stands. That's where he sits at the right hand of the Father with literal wounds still proving there is no more sacrifice to be paid. We need a final sacrifice in the official place where it had to be made, and that's what we have. That's all in verse 23. And then verse 24, 25. It is once for all. Verse 25. How did I get? I got on the wrong page, sorry. Now was it, uh, let's read 24 first. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. He doesn't offer himself repeatedly. Who did make offerings repeatedly? The Old Testament priests. We've said before, there's one piece of furniture never found in the, in the tabernacle or the temple, that is a, a chair. The priest never sat down because his work was never finished. He'd slaughter one animal, spread the, the, the blood on the altar, and then he comes back and there's another guy standing there needing his, his uh, animal to be processed. It's never, ever finished. And you're never finished bringing your sacrifices because as soon as you step out of the, out of the tabernacle, you've sinned again and it's time to get back in line and come offer another sacrifice. That's very different from Jesus. Again, this, this is sort of re- repetition from what we've studied earlier with Melchizedek, but here he says in a slightly different way, Jesus has appeared for all at the end of the ages. He's appeared for all at the end of the ages. Now, I want you to look with me at one other passage. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. Just go back uh, just to the left a little bit, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. I want you to understand what this term, end of ages, means in the book of Hebrews, really in the, in the epistles, <clears throat> most of the epistles. Chapter 10, verse 11, he says, uh, Paul is talking about the... the the Old Testament saints and the purpose of Old Testament history and so forth. Now, these things happened to them, 
That is, all the things they experienced in the wilderness, going through the sea and all that. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. He's talking about the New Testament believers and on. On whom the end of the ages has come. So we're tempted to think when we hear the end of the ages, we're tempted to think that time when Christ will come back and, and He consummates all things. But the end of the ages... In Hebrews, 1 Corinthians 10, 11, here's some other verses you may want to look up. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. In those passages, the end, the end of the ages means this time. The time after Christ's atonement. The big, redemptive, historical event that all of the Old Testament was looking forward to, the coming of the last lamb, his death, resurrection, and ascension, that has occurred. And now what is happening is that is being applied to his people. And when that, that atonement has been applied to the last person he's decided to save, then the end of time will come, Jesus will return, and consummate the kingdom. But I want you to understand that this time that you're living in is very significant. This is a time that Abraham longed to see. This is a time that Moses stretched his neck forward to see. And we are living in that time, the time when the last lamb was sacrificed. We are in the end of the ages. God has poured out His Spirit on the church. He has given us His, His, um, His gift of redemption, and He has empowered us to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's what we're celebrating in this missions conference. My challenge, though, is are we living that way? Are we living as if the end of the ages has come? Or are we living sort of like Jacques, thinking, oh, this world, this world is so evil. It's closing in on us. This, this, uh, this culture of ours is going down the tubes. Well, it is, but it's nothing new. We've still got a little way before we become as bad as Rome. And uh, that's, the, that's the culture into which the gospel came and, and the church spread like fire. Why? Because people, people were naive enough to believe that the Holy Spirit really had been poured out on them. And they weren't afraid to tell their neighbor about Christ. They weren't afraid to stand for Christ in the culture, even if it meant being kicked out of the club or out of their social circles. They weren't afraid to give away everything they had and sacrifice and risk being called a fanatic. They weren't afraid of lining up on the wrong side of a political perspective. They weren't afraid that they could lose something, that uh, if, they, if they lived the way Jesus said to and the, and the gospel spread. We are, living, we are in those ages now. And uh, there are brothers and sisters around the world living that way living full tilt, no fear, everything on the line, 
sacrifice in the, in the realistic perspective that there's nothing I can lose in this, in this life that will not be more than made up for in that which is to come. Don't miss that we're living at the end of the ages. It's all been paid. You can't lose. Then the final point I want to make uh, this morning is that <clears throat> this sacrifice that Christ has made for us to put away sins is not only final, it's once for all the ages. There is a second coming. There is a second appearing that we can anticipate, and that's what he comes to in, at the end of, um, of our passage in Hebrews 9 that I've turned away from. He says, and just as it was appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for it. Two phrases here I want to focus on. He will appear a second time and not to deal with sin, but to save. He will appear a second time. Why does the, the author use that word? appear. Remember what we've been studying. We've been studying the, the tabernacle and particularly the Holy of Holies and the high priest and the sacrifice that he would make, the sacrifices he would make once a year, the Day of Atonement. You can read about the Day of Atonement in Leviticus chapter 16. And uh, just a quick rehearsal, he would bring uh, two goats and a bull. The bull was for his own sins. He would bring one goat. He would kill the goat, spread the, the blood on the, on the altar of the mercy seat. And then the other goat, he would symbolically place the sins of Israel on his head and then shoo him away. That was the scapegoat. He would go into the, the, behind this very thick curtain uh, into the Holy of Holies. Only the, only the high priest could go in there. Tradition says that Little bells were put around the hem of his robe uh, so they could hear that he was still moving, a rope tied around his leg so that if he didn't offer the right sacrifices, God struck him dead, they could drag him out of there. So he comes into the Holy of Holies, he makes a sacrifice, and it's one day a year, and the people are gathered waiting to see what happens. Now, Numbers chapter 6 indicates to us how he indicated, how he conveyed that the sacrifice had been accepted. They would watch very carefully. You can imagine the, the pregnant moment as he's disappeared. He takes his time to hear the bells tinkling and so forth. And then he comes back out on his own accord. But then they're not sure yet. It's not official that God has accepted their sacrifice until he does something physical. And he does this. He raised his hands and said, May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord turn his countenance towards you and give you his peace. Amen. And when he did that, They did this, we receive it. Very dramatic moment. It meant victory. Victory has 
occurred. Your sins have been forgiven. And they said, we receive it. Now, Jesus did something similar, Luke chapter 24. Right before he ascended back to heaven, you read it for yourself, the end of Luke 24, he did what? He raised his hands and blessed them and then ascended. What was he saying? Victory. It's finished. You know, it was interesting in the reformation, the, the, this used to be the, the common way of conveying a benediction, people receiving it. And then it disappeared in the Middle Ages as the church came to, into a, a legalistic phase where you had, to, you had to keep sacrificing to keep getting forgiven. The Reformation came along to reform the church to what it had been, Originally, that is the preaching of the gospel, you're saved by grace through faith alone. And as they did, the reformers said, you know, we're missing something. something, something that used to tell us at the end of every service, your sins are forgiven. Something that used to tell us at the end of every service, it is finished. Oh, it was the benediction. And Martin Luther started raising his hands and pronouncing the ironic benediction, numbers Six, and some have called it the, the liturgical equivalent of a rainbow. When you see the rainbow, it means God is not going to destroy the earth again by water, right? And when you experience a benediction at the end of a worship service and you engage in that physical exchange, you are given a gift of remembering Jesus has paid it all. Victory has been secured. And the day is coming when Jesus will appear. He will come from behind the curtain, not of the Holy of Holies, but behind the curtain where we haven't been able to see Him. And He will appear for the final time and say, not your sins have been forgiven, but the whole thing is finished. Everything is accomplished. He will say, you are saved. See that phrase? Not to deal with sin, but to save. And save in these general epistles, in the, well, in all the epistles. Save in the epistles means the final salvation. There's a sense in which there's a, there's a sense in some cases where it's talking about the way you've been saved from sins, and that's appropriate to talk about being saved from sins. But you rob yourself of a particular comfort of Scripture if you only see save in the epistles referring to the moment you walked the aisle or the moment you prayed to receive Christ or, the, or that forgiveness of your personal sins. It's a bigger word than that. It means the day is coming when you and all creation will be once and for all saved. Saved from a decaying body, saved from the effects of sin, saved from mourning and sickness and pain, saved from injustice, saved from natural disasters, saved 
restored to be everything that God intended and more. I hope that is your faith. I pray it is your faith. I pray it is true of you, and that is the day you're looking toward. But it has to, it, 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 it requires that you first admit that you are as bad as the Bible says you are, as desperately needy for that salvation as the Bible says you are. We go back to our old buddy, Jock, who was afraid of his shadow, and especially this man who was extorting money from him. One day he saw in the newspaper that Queen Victoria was offering uh, in her jubilee, her 50th year, she was offering um, uh, a pardon for all who had deserted in the war. And Jacques, uh, she, the, the, the requirement was you tell what regiment it was, where you were supposed to go, where you were supposed to report to, and uh, you, you sent that to the general, Her Majesty's general, you could get a pardon. So Jacques wrote a letter and said, uh, I was in this, this uh, particular regiment, I was supposed to go to Egypt, but I was worried about my mother, so I went and checked on my mother, and before I got back, the boat had already left. So he got a letter back from General W. Uh, you're, you, you didn't read the, the advertisement correctly. This is for deserters. You obviously are not, were not a deserter. You didn't mean to desert. You went to see your mother. You missed the boat, so you weren't a deserter. So, sorry, I can't help you. So, Jacques wrote another letter. I was called to appear at such and such a time. I was in such and such a regiment. I was supposed to go to Egypt, and I deserted. The letter came back, full pardon. The extorter came by the next day. Oh, Jacques, need a half a shilling. Not going to give it to you. I'm going to tell your secret, Jacques. He said, You can shout it from the rooftops. I've been pardoned. My secret can be revealed. I've been pardoned. It's been put away. If you confess your sins, you come truly to Christ with your need and ask Him then He will not only save you from your sins today, but save you eternally, and this is what you will experience, Revelation 21. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Then the angel showed me the river, the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. 
No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of the lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. They will be, we will be saved.